we will start in verse 1. We're going to read through the whole chapter. I'm going to do this a little bit differently in the sense that I'm going to read through paragraphs at a time. Give main points on those paragraphs so that by the time we finish, we will have read all of 1 Corinthians 15. And this is, like I said, the probably most extensive chapter about Jesus' resurrection that you will find uh, in Scripture, at least describing its importance in a New Covenant context. So, let's get started. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Okay. So what we're going to start with first is verses 1 and 2. This is Paul introducing the gospel. This answers the question, what is the gospel? What are the events that make up the gospel? First thing he states is that you are saved by this gospel if you hold fast that word which I preached to you. And then he says, unless you believed in vain. So it's possible to believe in vain. In other words... It is useless to believe in Jesus if the message is not the true message. That would be believing in vain. That's why he says you have to hold fast the word. A great cross-reference to write down is Jude, verse 3. Jude is just one chapter. So if you write down Jude, chapter 1, verse 3, it states that we're to contend earnestly for the gospel or the word that was once for all delivered to the saints, which means we were given one message, one true message, and if we fight to keep that message pure and what it was meant to be, what it was originally given as, then that is the word that will save us. If the gospel ever gets twisted and people start sharing something that's a version of the gospel that's false, watered down, or diluted, then it would cause them to believe in vain, which is a very scary thing. That tells you people can believe in Jesus, but for nothing. If the gospel they believe is not the true one. So that's why the most important point, first of all, is that it is useless to believe in Jesus if the message is not the true message. Then he states the foundation of the true message in the next paragraph. That's verses 3 through 8. And the true message is that Jesus died, he says. He was buried. He rose again. And then proved his physical resurrection by showing himself to people alive. 
and he lists out the people that saw him. A good cross-reference for this is Acts chapter 1, verse 3. So if you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 3, I would like to read that, actually. Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says that Jesus, about Jesus, to whom he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Many infallible proofs. In other words, Jesus wanted to make it obvious that he physically rose again from the dead. Even to the point that he let the disciples touch his body, the prints of the nails in his hands, the hole from the spear in his side. And he even told his disciples, Behold, handle me and see that a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Those were Jesus' words. He wanted them to know, I'm physically alive. He proved it with many infallible proofs. So the foundation of the gospel, again, the foundation of the true message is that Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again, and he proved his physical resurrection by showing himself to people. It's important to emphasize this because there are a few versions of the gospel out there that actually state that Jesus did not physically rise again, but that he rose as a spirit. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that, actually. They believe that he rose as a spirit to heaven but left his body here. That is a false gospel. And because this is the foundation, we have to believe this in order for it to save us. So Jesus rose physically. We'll get to more about the importance of that momentarily. Okay, let's read now verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11 says, For I am the least of the apostles, Paul speaking, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is where Paul takes a break from talking about the foundations of the gospel and reveals something about God's grace. In so many words, he's saying, that I killed Christians, so if God saved me, people would know that it had to be purely because of his grace and not because of anything that I did. A good cross-reference for this is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. If you guys are taking notes, you should write that down. 1 Timothy 1, verses 13 through 16. I won't read that. But that's an example where Paul states that he was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, but he says he obtained mercy because he did it ignorantly and in unbelief. Then goes on to say that God saved him to make his life a pattern to those who would believe after him. So if you take Jesus rising again from the dead and proclaims a message that through his name, 
people have repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now, to make sure from that point forward that no one questioned that salvation was by his grace to forgive people, he started with Paul, who is the worst, and Paul called himself the chief of sinners, and forgave him. So that afterwards, nobody would be able to use their sin as an excuse to say they couldn't be forgiven. So Paul is set forth as an example for every single person who would be saved after him, which is that none of us are worthy in and of our own works to be saved. So Jesus rose. Well, first he died, and then he rose so that all of us, no matter the extent of our sin, could be forgiven. And that's what Paul sets as an example. You could summarize that, all of that, by simply saying, God chose Paul to highlight his grace and the power of the resurrection to change people. That's the point. God chose Paul to highlight his grace and the power of the resurrection to change people. There is no one who has a more extreme transformation than Paul, from who he was to who he became. He even goes as far as to say that he labored more abundantly than all of the other apostles. That's his way of saying he worked harder at preaching the gospel than anyone else. He also worked hardest at destroying the church before he was saved. So he's the furthest away from the truth as possible. Then he becomes the one who works hardest at advancing the gospel and the church. And he says this is by the grace of God. So God chose Paul to highlight his grace and the power of the resurrection to change people. Okay, now let's read verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep, or those who have died, in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. I have found it a surprise when I was first studying 1 Corinthians 15 that there were already people this early in the Christian faith that were questioning whether there was actually going to be a resurrection or not. You see people doing this today. And he's trying to say, if there is not coming a day when God will raise every dead person physically from the grave to life again, that day is not coming, then that means Jesus never rose again either. And if Jesus never rose again, then it is completely useless to be a Christian. He says, of all men, we're the most pitiable. So if it's not true that Jesus rose again from the dead, then the worst religion, if I'm to use that word, you could follow is Christianity. 
You're the worst of people with the worst of beliefs if it's not true that Jesus rose again from the dead. That's what verse 19 focuses on. Verse 19 is a great verse to keep in your memory too, actually. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. So the, the question of why it's the worst of religions is because if Christ isn't risen, then that means there is no such thing as a hope of life after death. And if there's no hope of life after death, then Christianity only helps you here and now for your earthly life. But when you think about it, there are plenty of other religions that let you do more pleasurable things and still have a pretty good life. Christianity asks you to give up everything for Jesus. But if he's not risen, then everything Jesus asked us to do is completely useless because everything Jesus asked us to do was with respect for eternity after you die. And if there's no eternity after you die in heaven, then he asked you to give up all those things for nothing, which would make people who follow other religions way better off than you are. And that's why. Now, this is a challenge to all of us. We'll talk about this again more later. This is a challenge to all of us because if you cannot be of absolute certainty that Jesus is alive, then that undermines the foundation of your faith. If there's one thing we must be sure of if we're going to be followers of Jesus, it is that he is alive, that he rose again from the dead. Super important. I would summarize all of that paragraph, just to put it in one sentence, as saying, to doubt the coming day of judgment and our physical resurrection is to doubt Jesus' resurrection. And if Christ didn't rise again, Christianity is useless and a lie. Yeah, I'll repeat it again. To doubt the coming day of judgment and our physical resurrection is to doubt Jesus' resurrection. To doubt the coming day of judgment and our physical resurrection is to doubt Jesus' resurrection. And if Christ didn't rise again, Christianity is useless and a lie. Okay. Go to the next paragraph here. Start in verse 20 and we will read to verse 28. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. 
But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be made subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now there's a lot to that paragraph, but I'm just going to have us focus for now on the main point of it, which is that Jesus rose to promise that we would also rise from death and get a new body. That's his main point. Jesus rose to promise that we would also rise from death and get a new body. In terms of timing, he says this will happen when Christ comes to earth again. This will also mean the end of the world. When Christ returns, the world will end, you'll get a new body, and there will be a new earth. But that's when that day will come. There is a verse in Acts 17. This one I actually would like to read. It's just coming to mind right now. Turn to Acts 17 real quick. We'll come back to 1 Corinthians 15 in a moment. Speaking of the end, Acts 17, start in verse 30. This is Paul speaking to a Gentile audience, the people who are idol worshipers in Athens. Verse 30, he says, teaching them, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because... He has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. This is a really important scripture that speaks to the importance of Christ's resurrection and one of the main reasons for why Jesus rose again from the dead. Paul says in this verse, you can be sure that Christ will return again to judge the world because you can be sure that he rose again from the dead. Kind of like saying, if you know that Jesus in a a real body ascended to heaven, then you can be pretty sure he's going to come back down again. If he went up, he's going to come down. Because what goes up, comes down. (laughs) Jesus follows his own law of gravity. (laughs) At least in this case. That's literally what he's saying. Like this verse literally means, if he went up, he's going to come down. That's the point. If he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, that's his way of saying, hey, I'm going to be back. And when I come back, I'm going to judge the world. So what you're saying when you say that Jesus rose again from the dead is that, hey, he's going to be back to judge the world. That's why Paul, if we go back to 1 Corinthians 15, says that Christ at his coming, this also means the coming of the end. The world will be remade. Death will be destroyed. You'll get a new body. 
Do we have any questions so far? Okay. Let's read verses 29 through 32 now. It says, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? <clears throat> I affirm by the boasting in which, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I'll also read verses 33 and 34. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Okay. Verses 29 through 32. This is Paul's way of saying, Why do I willingly subject myself to persecution and the hardships of preaching the gospel and laying down my life if it's not actually true? Why give myself to that kind of pain if Jesus isn't alive? That's his point. Then he adds, but if the dead do not rise, in other words, if this life is all that matters and there is no resurrection, then it doesn't matter how you live. You can sin as much as you want because you're going to die tomorrow. He's using a figure of speech. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This is his kind of like YOLO statement, right? That you only live once. It, you might as well enjoy it. You're going to be dead one day, so sin and die. That's all that matters, supposedly, right? That's the argument he's using, which is valid. If Jesus is not risen, reasonably, you can just sin as much as you want and then die. Because it wouldn't matter anyway. That is perfectly logical if Jesus isn't alive. If you're speaking to, you know, supposed believers who don't yet have a full conviction of Jesus' resurrection, or maybe they don't really believe at all that he physically rose again from the dead, maybe it was just a spiritual thing, or maybe it was just a story that was told to give people a picture of some kind of hope. If you're talking to a person who thinks like that, it is perfectly logical to tell them, well, it doesn't matter how you live then anyway. Just sin as much as you want and then die. It won't make a difference. Right? But if Jesus is alive, then everything changes at that point. Then Paul describes what the change is. And that's in verses 33 and 34, which you just read. Don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. In other words, don't spend time around people who are going to doubt the resurrection and say that your, your actions don't matter. That's his point. Then he says, what you should do is awake to righteousness and do not sin. In other words, if a day of resurrection is coming, your actions matter. And there will be judgment for them. But if this life is all there is, then sin all you want. 
But if there is a resurrection and a judgment day coming, which there is, then your actions do matter. There will be judgment for them. So those two paragraphs, verses 29 through 32 and then verses 33 through 34, I would summarize those two in two main points. The first is that Jesus' resurrection gives us reason to accept persecution. In other words, it's not for nothing if we're persecuted for what we believe because we know it's real. Jesus' resurrection gives us reason to accept persecution. The second point on verses 33 through 34 is that Jesus' resurrection gives us reason to stop sinning. If Jesus is alive, you will show that faith by accepting persecution and ceasing from sin. That's how you show it. In other words, you won't be afraid to be mistreated or insulted for what you believe. And you won't give yourself over to sin. You will want to live righteously. That's why he says, awake to righteousness. Let us state those points one more time. Jesus' resurrection gives us reason to accept persecution. And Jesus' resurrection gives us reason to stop sinning. Now let's talk about, he gets into the details of what the resurrection looks like. We're going to read a larger chunk here, verses 35 through 49. It's all one thought. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies my favorite part of the whole chapter. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the natural is not first, or the, excuse me, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Amen. Love that passage. Here's the point. When the resurrection happens, we will get 
a perfected version of the body we have now. And it will be like the one that Jesus has. Another uh, really good cross-reference for this is 1 John chapter 3. If you look at verses, verse 2, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, that's his second coming, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You're going to look and be just like Jesus when he returns. Now, this is a great verse, just as a side note, to say that nobody, since Jesus ascended to heaven, has physically seen Jesus. People can have visions and dreams and stuff like that. But he says, as soon as you see him, you'll be like him. So if you walk away with a glorified body, then I'll know that you have seen Jesus physically. But until that happens, you haven't. So that's just a great cross-reference to have. He says, you'll have the same kind of body that Jesus has. You'll bear the image of the heavenly man. That's Jesus. To repeat the point, when the resurrection happens, we will get a perfected version of the body we have now. It will be like the one that Jesus has. And then my favorite part of it is he uses an illustration about a seed that you sow into the ground and then it produces fruit. And he states in verse 36, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain. In other words, to grow an apple tree, you don't put an apple in the ground. You don't sow an apple, you sow a seed. The seed becomes the tree that gives you the apples. His point is that your body right now is the seed that when you die is buried in the ground and that later God will use to grow the heavenly body that you will get later. So the way in which this has relevance to our lives today is that this body you have now matters because it's the seed. Just as much as if, you, as if you sow an apple seed, but you didn't take care of that seed, you will not get an apple tree. If you don't take care of this body, I'll talk about what that means in a moment. If you don't take care of this body, then it will not become the resurrection to a heavenly body that God would desire for you, that he would intend for you. There is a verse in Daniel. Why don't we actually turn to it just because I want to make sure that you guys get this. Let's go to Daniel chapter 12, the last chapter of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12 in verse 2.
Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. To explain that verse, I'm going to give you one where Jesus said that there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. A resurrection of the just and the unjust. Reference for that. Look at Acts 24 verse 15. Is actually, I believe it's Paul speaking, Acts 24, 15. Here it states, And I have hope in God, which they themselves also hold, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Compare that to Daniel 12. He says, People who are dead, some will awake or rise again to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. In other words, it's not just believers who rise with a new body. Unbelievers will as well. There's a verse where Jesus said, Do not fear man that can kill the body and afterwards has nothing else that he can do, but fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Now here's the thing. Hell is eternal. And if the Bible says God will destroy both body and soul in hell, then that means unbelievers rise from the dead on the day of judgment and are given a body that can last forever in hell. Whereas believers are given a body that lasts forever in God's kingdom. If you look at Isaiah 66 verse 24, this is the last verse of Isaiah. It says, they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. There will be corpses that are consumed and that will burn forever. Bodies. That's why there's a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Now let's go back to what I started with. Your body is a seed. You get to decide what this seed will be. You either make it a seed that will become a body that will be consumed in hell forever, or you sow this body as a seed that will enjoy everlasting life in God's kingdom forever. You get to choose. When I mentioned take care of this body, that comes down to whether you will be yielded to sin or to righteousness. If you choose to, as the gospel calls us, turn from sin or repent, believe in Jesus and obey his word, what you are doing is turning your life, your body into a seed that when you die will become the image of the heavenly man, you'll be with Jesus and like him forever. 
if you don't repent and turn from sin, believe Jesus and obey his word, then you sow your body as a seed that will become a corpse that will be consumed forever and ever in hell. And you'll be conscious of it. All of it will be felt. So that's what Paul's saying when he's saying your body is a seed. And that makes your death, your physical death here, the moment that that seed is sown. That's why our actions matter. That's why the resurrection has relevance to everything that we do. Because you are turning yourself into the seed that will be sown into the ground when you die. This is something we ought to be conscious of a lot more often than we are. Not just for your own life, but with regard to the lives of others as well. If we care about people, we will want people to know this. That what they do with their body matters. There will be consequences. There is a day of judgment. I'll just summarize, wrap up on that section. I'll repeat the first point I made. When the resurrection happens, we will get a perfected version of the body we have now, and it will be like the one that Jesus has. The second point is that the body we have now is like a seed sown. Your death is planting the seed that God will turn into the new body you will have. That new body will either be in God's kingdom or it will be in hell. And both are forever. Okay. Let's look at verse 50. Verses 50 through 55. He says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? So Paul just kind of gave it away, but verse 55, that's Hosea 13, 14, that is the Old Testament Easter egg of 1 Corinthians 15. <laughs> so if you ever figured it out in Hosea 13, 14, when reading Hosea, without having read 1 Corinthians 15, then you solved the puzzle, congratulations. But otherwise, we have the answer key. So the point for verses 50 through 55 He's describing how resurrection day will happen. There will be a day with some of us still living on earth when Christ will come and raise the dead, giving them all a new body. Everyone, believers and unbelievers. But for those who are still alive, he will change the bodies of the living into the new body.
Paul says it will happen at the last trumpet. For those of you who are unfamiliar, the last trumpet is the trumpet that sounds when Jesus returns from heaven at the end of what's called the Great Tribulation. So after the world has undergone the judgment and the wrath of God, the globe itself, Christ will return from heaven. There'll be a blast of a trumpet. If you happen to be still alive and on earth and you see that day, you'll, you'll see, you'll witness your own body in an instant be transformed into the new body you will have entering into God's kingdom. For those of us who have died, that means our seed was sown into the ground. Your body was sown. He'll use that dirt, if you will. <laughs> I don't know exactly how it works. Your bones, whatever. Who knows? And pull you out of the ground and join your spirit back with your body, which will have been in heaven at that point. And that's how you receive your new body that way if, if you have died at that point. That's how it'll happen. Then verses 56 through 57, he says, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory over sin, death, and the law. In context, that's the victory he's talking about. So the sting of death is sin, is his way of saying, you feel death when you sin. You guys know what that feels like. You do something wrong, you suffer the consequences. It stings. That's called the sting of death. Then he says the strength of sin is the law. In other words, somebody tells you not to do something, what do you do? Do it. <laughs> and you didn't think of doing that thing until you were told not to. Right? Paul, said, Paul says the law arouses sin. The rebellion of the flesh is that as soon as somebody says, don't do that, now you start thinking about it, and then you end up doing it. You see this especially in children. The law, rules, regulations, strengthens the force of sin in your mortal flesh. That's also part of death at work in your body. So he says, the law makes you want to sin, and when you sin, you're feeling the sting of death. But remember, as believers... Christ gave you victory over both because you're delivered from the law. Now you're under grace and you're delivered from sin to which you don't have to be a slave any longer. You can live a new life in a habit of righteousness rather than a habit of sin. And you can do righteousness out of appreciation for God's grace rather than out of the obligation of a rule, commandment, or regulation. Being in grace and being delivered from the slavery of sin, we're experiencing the victory that Christ gave us. You might feel a little bit of the sting of death. In fact, you will if you sin. But remember Christ won the war to defeat death. That's the point. You may feel the sting of death now, but Christ won the war to defeat death. And read verse 58. This is what he finishes with. This is his crescendo, his conclusion. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. I love that conclusion. Be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. In other words, obeying God is never a waste of time. Every single action of obedience to God that you take will have a reward for it eternally. Nothing that you do for Christ goes to waste. All of it has relevance for eternity. None of it is wasted. So he says, be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. In other words, stay strong. Don't let anyone move you away from your faith. And always abounding means always increasing. Keep going. Don't give up. Never give up on doing God's work. Because it all will have a reward. And it all will mean something for eternity. There's even, there's two verses that talk about it. But there's one, one in particular in Jesus' words. Where we'll, we're told that every single, or it's inferred, excuse me. Every single good work that you do for Christ has a specific reward for it. It even goes down to saying that giving a believer who's thirsty a cup of water in Jesus' name has a reward for it in heaven. There's a psalm that says God puts our tears into his bottle, which basically means that he pays attention to every tear you cry, says every hair of your head is numbered. He's into the details. And he sees everything that you do. Every good work that you do in his name has a reward for it. And that's something that we can look forward to as believers. For unbelievers, the Bible says that every single sin, everything that God knows is sin, has a consequence or a penalty for it in hell. And Jesus taught that hell does not look the same for everyone. Jesus said it will be more tolerable for some than for others. So as an unbeliever, every time you sin makes hell a little bit worse. As a believer, every good work increases the reward. It makes God's kingdom a little bit greater. Now, this doesn't mean we should be doing what we're doing as doing what we're doing as believers just so we can get more jewels in our crown, right? You may have heard that that kind of speech before. We should do it because we love God. That should be the motive, because we love Him and want to serve Him. But He does encourage us to keep in mind that there is reward for your good works in heaven, and there is penalty for sin in hell. And Jesus' resurrection, the fact that he's alive, is how we can be certain of that reality and that your actions here have great importance and have uh, eternal consequence. As an action step, what I would encourage you guys to do, I've just been asking myself this question. This has just been the past few days or so, thinking about this. Ask yourself, am I living like I believe Jesus is risen? 
Because you show your faith by your works, right? That's what James chapter 2 says. You show your faith by your works. Now, if you guys remember, we went over this. Who can tell me the two things that Paul said for evidences in this chapter that a person believes the resurrection is real? <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of verses there. Yeah. Yeah. A hint would be, if I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, Verse like 33 and 34. Yep. Yep. Exactly. He said persecution and then not sinning or living righteously. Which means if you believe that Jesus is risen, you won't be afraid to be persecuted. And you'll preach the gospel and you won't care the backlash you get for it. Second thing is that you'll want to stop sinning and you'll live righteously. Those are the two things at least that Paul mentions explicitly in 1 Corinthians 15, that are set forth as examples proving that a person believes that Jesus is risen. Now, your faith or your belief can grow. Your, the level of your conviction can increase. But you know that your belief is growing when you're standing for your faith more without fear of backlash for it and you will continue to repent from sin. So when I encourage you guys to ask yourself the question of, am I living like I believe Jesus is risen? It's another way of asking yourself, am I continually turning away from sin? And am I continuing to go grow bolder about my faith? If your boldness about your faith is growing, and if your repentance from sin is increasing, that's showing that your belief is being strengthened. I don't want us to look at the 12 apostles and the conviction with which they lived and think that they were somehow given a special advantage. Because if anything, if God looks at us and knows that we live with a boldness of faith without having seen Jesus physically, that actually shows that our belief might be a little bit stronger than the apostles was. Because we have believed without seeing. Right? Jesus said it's blessed if you do not see and yet believe. That means we actually have an advantage the apostles didn't have. Because they saw, we didn't. Uh, I just want to read you this scripture real quick out of 1 Peter. This kind of sums this up really well. First Peter chapter 1, verse 7, starting there, says that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing... You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Don't yet see him, but believing you rejoice. Receiving salvation. 
That's just a good cross-reference, too, to keep in mind. I'll just finish with, again, as a reminder, ask yourself the question, am I living like I believe Jesus is alive? And if you know you can improve in that belief, which we all can, then take steps to progress. Take steps to grow. And realize you have a privilege, you have a blessing for you. Having not yet seen Jesus. That's something that the apostles didn't have. Remember that your actions matter. That your actions have consequences. And don't let death cause you to lose hope. Somebody close to you passes away. Their death is just a seed. That will eventually grow to become the new body that they will get when Christ returns. That they chose. Right. They chose the body they will have. So live like you believe. Remember that your actions have consequences. Eternally. And don't let death steal your hope. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is trying to convey. Any questions before we end? It could be about maybe a verse in 1 Corinthians 15 that was confusing to you also. Does it matter if you're buried or cremated? I think God can make a new body out of ashes. Yeah. Ashes is just a form of dust, you know. So, yeah, that, that's the kind of thing, that, that's kind of Paul's, when he's speaking as devil's advocate, he's talking about how people would say, well, how is that, how does that work? Like, how is God going to do that? He's saying, guys, like, you don't have to, he's God. <laughs> he, he can do it however, we, however he wants, it doesn't matter. You know, there's no scripture that says you have to be buried, not cremated. So, yeah, don't worry about that. Are you just resting your hand? A new body out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you created the universe, he's not going to have any problem creating a new body. Yeah. Any more questions about anything? Yeah. David, so the people that didn't believe in Christ will still get a new body. So they'll go to heaven with this new body and be judged? And then the new body goes down to hell? We don't know if that judgment all happens in heaven. All we're told is that, yes, they'll get a new body. They'll have a resurrection experience. But then they will take that, they, supposedly in that body they'll be standing before what's called the, the great white throne. It's called the great white throne judgment in Revelation. And that's where Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. You know, that whole uh, experience. But we don't know the, the specific details. All we know is that people are resurrected. Jesus separates them. Some are cast into the lake of fire. Some some are uh, received into the kingdom of God. Um, but everyone will have a new body. Now think about, we don't know exactly what the new bodies of those who go to hell will look like. We don't know if they'll, what, what exactly what they'll be like. But think about being an unbeliever and everybody gets a body, believers get a new body, and you get a new one, and you have to take that new body into hell. Yeah, that'd be very sad. Be a very sad day, you know. Especially knowing that you could have take, taken that body into God's kingdom and lived forever with him. You know? Yeah. David, when I was a little girl and things are going on inside my home, I would look out my front, I'd look out my window and face, face the driveway and there's a sugar maple over there. 
and I believe I saw Jesus. So what was I seeing as a little girl if I didn't see him? Because I'm not like him yet. Yeah. <laughs> you could have seen an angel. You could have simply imagined Jesus. You could have seen some kind of, you know, spiritual vision. But when we're talking about seeing Jesus, we're saying like with the naked eye, seeing him physically. That's, that's what it's talking about. So it could have been anything but that. But I don't know. Maybe you'll find out one day. One more thing, David. I believe he came for me because of that. Is that truth? I don't know. Okay. I'll talk to him yeah. when I get there. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you said that no one has ever seen Jesus until he, like, since he's risen to heaven. What about Paul? I guess he was kind of blinded, but it was Jesus talking to him from heaven. And he said in 1 Corinthians 15 that he saw him. Yeah. So that you see my confusion? Yeah. So Paul says, I saw him. But if you look at the account, all that Paul saw was a light. So he's referring to the light as him. But then it says he heard his voice. So if you look at the account in Acts 9, all it says is there was a light shone from heaven that blinded Paul and he heard a voice of Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Plus he was so. blind. So. Yes, he was also <laughs> blind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why we're going to need a glorified body because of... Yeah, yeah. Non-believers are going to get a body that will be able to sustain. Right. Yeah, you have to have a new body in order to be able to be in God's presence without dying. Uh, yeah, that's why he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Because this body you have now can't handle heaven. There's actually a uh, really important, there's a few verses that talk about it, but one is in Acts chapter 3 that says about Jesus, heaven must retain or receive him until the time that all things are restored. Which means that Jesus is never going to leave the right hand of God in heaven until he returns. Mormons believe that Jesus came physically to the Americas at a certain point in the past so that they could have the gospel too. That's a direct contradiction to what scripture says because Jesus himself said that over to the Jews, he said, um, you will not see me again until the day comes when you uh, are saying, blessed, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the second coming. Jesus said, you will not see me until I return again. So you, anybody, whether they have their own personal vision or they say they saw Jesus physically or somebody follows a religion that says Jesus appeared that's not going to happen until the second coming. Physically speaking, Jesus is staying at the right hand of God until the second coming. Well, they were dead. So the question is, people have near-death experiences and say that they see Jesus? Yeah. So I can't be, we can't be certain about it, but we know that because they're dead and their spirit went to heaven and saw Jesus, that could be def different because they saw him as a spirit in heaven, right? But they're not seeing on earth with physical eyes. So there isn't scripture that says that can't happen, but there is scripture that says you can't see him physically here. So we don't know. It could, 
that could be true. Any more questions about anything? You got an Easter egg? <laughs> Which says? For my soul not, excuse me, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. I think that's talking about Jesus' resurrection. It is. It is, yeah. Congratulations. You found it. Psalm 16.10. Yeah, Peter found that one first, but. Okay. Yes. Yeah, why shouldn't you go to your experiences to determine truth? Yeah, <laughs> that too. Yeah, other religions started on people's experiences. You know. Your experiences are unreliable. Experiences can change. Experiences can deceive you. Because you can, ex the Bible says that the devil disguises himself as an angel of light. So people can even have angelic encounters and it's not actually God or an angel of God. That's how Islam started. A demonic encounter that Muhammad had, he thought it was the angel Gabriel, so on and so forth. Now you have a false religion that started as a result of that. Scripture doesn't change. It has been the same since the time it was penned. It is proven reliable both historically, scientifically, spiritually speaking. And scripture doesn't care what your feelings or experiences are. <laughs> It'll stay the same regardless. That's why you can trust it. It's a solid foundation. Your experiences can change and that you can have one experience that's one way and then you can experience something different, a contradictory later. Because experiences change just as easily as your feelings do. That's why you can't trust them. Now, if you have an experience that completely agrees with Scripture at every point, that's good. But most of the time, it's still ideal to keep it to yourself when it comes to sharing with other people. Because people need to trust Scripture first. And if you lead in your teaching with your experiences, you're causing people to trust experiences rather than Scripture. So if you're saying something you can't point to it anywhere in the Word, simply don't share it. Because it creates an impression to people that you can just rely on your experiences when that's, of course, not what we want to convey.